Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I now understand that thoughts of spring come to the idle person. Red and white flourishing together keep coming into sight. By the time the blossoms finally come, you're already much older. The one who comes to gaze at flowers is not the one who sows the seeds. Now what I just read to you is a poem whose title is translated Red and White Plum Blossoms Flourishing at the Lake, an Amusement. And I read it for you just because I really like it. Um, It's one of many works that are translated and collected in a recent collection of Leger's selected writings called A Book to Burn and A Book to Keep Hidden. This volume came out with Columbia University Press in 2016, and it was co-edited by Rivi Handler-Spitz, Pauline Lee, and Han Saucy. And Rivi, Pauline, and Han did most of the translations collected in the volume as well, although the volume also includes some translations from other people um, as also, and those include the poem that I just read to you. So this volume is really exciting, I think, and I'm really excited to share it with you, to share this conversation with you. It is a collection of work that's going to be a boon not only to researchers of China, um, but also just to readers who like reading good things, um, to teachers, to students. And one of the things that we'll talk about um, at the end of the conversation, as you'll hear, is how this book and its contents um, and the translated pieces within it might be useful in all sorts of classrooms, not only classrooms that are devoted to Chinese-specific topics. So for those of you who haven't heard of Li Zhi, he was a particularly fascinating figure. He lived from 1527 to 1602 in the late Ming, and he was a philosopher, he was a historian, he was a writer of all sorts of different kinds of texts, and he was quite controversial. Um, he enters a monastery at some point in his life as a way to try to find freedom. Eventually he's arrested, he's thrown into prison, and he kills himself there with a shaving razor. And there's all kinds of really useful and interesting interesting historical documentation about Li Zhi that's translated um, at the end of the volume that we'll talk about today. In the course of the conversation, you'll hear us talking about not only kind of some of the um, most uh, important themes that thread through Leger's work. You'll hear us also talking about some of the joys and challenges of translating these pieces. And you'll also hear us talking about some of the really, I think, fascinating items in the book, including especially a document that the co-editors and translators decided to offer in two different kinds of translation, um, which do two different kinds of work. And so the conversation is about Leger. It's about this volume, and it's also importantly about translation and important aspects thereof. So with that, it's a pretty extensive conversation, so I'll let you get to it. And I just want to say thank you uh, for listening. Thanks for joining us at the podcast, and thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Rivi Handler-Spitz, Pauline C. Lee, and Han Saucy about their new edited and translated volume of Leger's Selected Writings. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, the three of you. Um, thank you so much, um, both for creating a volume that I think is going to be really, really useful, not just to read and enjoy, but also to research with and to teach with, and also for making time, uh, the three of you, to talk about it today with me. I really appreciate it, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Of course. Um, So let's start with a question that is traditional for the channel. This is the what brought you to the field um, question, and specifically what brought you to China. Um, So let's talk about that one by one. Han, how did you come to work in Chinese studies? Well, the short answer would have to be structuralism. I I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is one of those linguistically isolated parts of the country. I was fascinated by Levi-Strauss and Foucault and all those guys. 
I had a chance to go over and study in France, and I got there sort of at the waning moment of structuralism, but when a lot of people who were still somehow associated with that movement were fascinated by China. So I started to read the same books that they were reading, and a couple of really good things had just come out. So that's, that's how I was lured in. And when did you start studying Chinese? Like, when did you start focusing on that? It was uh, after undergraduate school. I, I just signed up for first-year Chinese at the École des Langues Orientales in Paris, and uh, that's what got me hooked. Pauline, what about you? What brought you to the study of China? Well, I grew up in Mankato, Minnesota, and it wasn't where I lived that brought me to China. But my parents are both from China, and it was in my we spoke Chinese when I was growing up. I was absolutely uninterested in my cultural heritage until I went to college, and I read Zhuangzi. And I'd say Zhuangzi is... Um, if I need to name one person or one thing, it would be his text that brought me to China studies. Awesome. And Rivi, what about you? Why China? It's a question I get asked a lot, and I've never come up with a very good answer to the question. <laughs> um, but I did have the opportunity to travel to China for a month in high school before I had started learning any Chinese. And I was absolutely fascinated. And then when I went to college, I decided I was, it was very... Um, I was really having a hard time figuring out, should I study ancient Greek or should I study Hebrew or should I study Chinese? And I just decided I had just had this experience um, in China and I decided, okay, I will study Chinese. And then after one year, having had a wonderful teacher, I just realized, oh, I still can't say anything. I need to have another year and another and another. And then, you know, 20 years later, I'm still studying Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of our long-term relationship with language, right? It's, con it's a constant. And really, what are you working on when you're not working on translating and editing volumes of Leisure? Like, what's the nature of your research um, more broadly? Um, well, um, and I think we also hear, um, uh, for listeners, we also hear Hans Child uh, in the background. So perhaps this is a budding a scholar uh, that will listen to this one day as well, and we can have used this project more knows, in their entrance into the field. Um, this is part of the real-life context in which scholarship right. gets made. That's right. Um, but Rivi, so, sorry, Rivi, what are you working on when you're not working on Leecher? Oh, when I'm not working on Leecher, or, um, or the kind of, well, I, I've been working on Leecher a lot, actually. Okay, um, so my, I have another book that's actually just about to come out next month, um, which is a comparative study of Leecher and um, some of his European contemporaries, including Montaigne and Cervantes and Erasmus. Um, and, <laughs> and so, um, I have been, my interest actually in Leecher comes not only from my interest in Chinese studies, but also in kind of looking broadly across the 16th century and thinking about aesthetic, the commonalities and the aesthetics of the early modern period between what's going on in Europe and in China in that period. Excellent. And so, Pauline, how about you? What are you working on more broadly in your research? And let's also kind of keep this vibe going. How did you mm -hmm. um, come to an interest in Leisure specifically in mm -hmm. this volume from mm -hmm. whatever the broader field? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I came to, when I was in graduate school, I was at first interested in ancient China and in Confucian texts. And also I was interested in the subject of women. And I had a hard time finding a good topic looking at ancient China Confucian texts and women, I was reading through the centuries and Li Zhu has an essay um, about, he has a couple of essays that are very famous about women. So one is about women being short-sighted, for example, and he says absolutely not the case. And for that reason, I became interested in looking at him. And so that was my initial interest. And then it became more and more, I'm interested in, I become interested and did, and his ability to bring together the ideas of like desire and subjectivity and sort of distinctiveness along with um, intention with celebrating tradition and culture. Um, and then like Rivi, I've been thinking, I've been doing a lot with Leeds. So we're on a couple collaborative projects, um, including a conference we threw together too on the subject of Leeds. Um, and then from my work on Leeds, I became interested also just in life in general. I became interested in the subject of children and childhood and how we think about them in um, the Chinese culture. So that's one of my current projects on uh, that subject. 
Very cool. Um, so Han, what about you? What are you working on um, that uh, maybe articulates with your coming to an interest in leisure in this project? Yeah, well, these coming days, I'm just about to send off the final draft of a book about translation, which is, it turns Yay. out, mostly about mostly about the Chuamzu. So Pauline mm-hmm. and I have that mm-hmm. ancestor in common. Uh, this is a book that uh, should be coming out maybe later this year uh, called Translation as Citation. It's a crazy book. But uh, what, what drew me to Li Zhu? Well, obviously, the stylistic challenge of translating this guy. You know, we'll talk about his writing style. But it's a, it's a very abrupt, uh, very involving style because he's always changing course. You think you know what's going on, and then he writes a sentence that seems to have nothing to do with what was just said, and you have to somehow jump with him, right? So he's a very martial arts. Uh, he's a mixed martial arts. <laughs> uh, so there's that. I, I love these people who are stylistically very challenging. And as somebody who does a lot of translating, I love trying to bring them across in English in some way. So there's that. I always like the renegades and the crazies, and he's one of them. And um, also, I think Li is very useful for understanding Chinese culture, because if you try to understand different cultures, here I'm speaking as a sort of a pseudo-anthropologist, but if you go around and ask people, what is important in your culture, what do you value in your culture, you'll probably get the same kind of bland responses that make it look like all cultures are the same. But if you go around and you say, what is absolutely intolerable in your culture? What drives you nuts? What are the lines that must not be crossed? Then you'll actually get a much more useful portrait of that culture. And Liger is the guy who stepped on every live wire of his time. He made lots of people mad. He made people mad who had nothing in common except being made mad by Liger. <laughs> and so he is, he is like an x-ray of Ming Dynasty China in that way. Mm. And so just hugely helpful for understanding that culture. Well, let's stay um, uh, on this path um, and follow this thread and talk a little bit about the genesis of the volume itself. And Han, maybe we'll stay with you um, for a moment and then we'll kind of open out. So the volume itself came out um, in a series with Columbia University Press, and this is a really, really important um, uh, Columbia University Press has been extraordinarily important um, in terms of bringing out volumes like this. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about the larger kind of series-ish that this is part of um, and how this particular uh, idea for this volume emerged um, as a contribution to Columbia University Press's longstanding commitment to creating um, volumes that are useful like this. And so, Han, um, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Sure. Well, for 70 or so years, uh, dating, I think, to basically the Second World War, maybe even before, Columbia has had this series of translations from the Asian classics that have been connected to their core curriculum and to some very important pedagogical options that uh, have been supervised over the years by people like William DeBerry. Uh, Burton Watson has been one of their great translators. And so these things are just monuments in the American intellectual landscape. Everybody who gets interested in Asia, reads these translations, and they become just kind of often the standard translation, certainly influential translations. So I was delighted that they were willing to accept this book into their series, partly, of course, for just the pure, sheer prestige of it all, but also because the, the uh, philosophers who've been chosen for these series have often been uh, fairly well-behaved, you know, thrifty, reverent, uh, all that stuff, right? Uh, you know, respectful of their elders and trying to insert themselves in the continuity of the tradition. And here's, here's a guy who is kind of the bad boy, who claims to be inheriting the real spirit of the tradition, but like a lot of revolutionaries, he has to kick over a bunch of apple carts in order to get to what he thinks is the real spirit of the tradition. So it helps you understand Chinese philosophy in a different way, and and the the whole argument about what comes from what and where legitimacy lies. So here, in a way, he's the anti-philosopher, and in a way, he's the person who most believes in the, the mission of Chinese thought out of all of them, right? Because he can't take anything for granted. So these are reasons for being really happy that it comes out in that series and becomes available to the American reader. Ruby, um, would you add, like to add anything? Yeah, um, 
I just, I think, just seconding what, what Han said, but also there is this sort of wonderful irony. Nietzsche himself loved irony, and his writings are filled with irony. And there's this wonderful irony that um, someone who was, you know, he has this book called A Book to Burn, right, which is also the title of our book. And his, the, um, the Wanli Emperor had his books burned and they were completely, they were considered the antithesis of what was canonized in the Chinese tradition. And then the Columbia, you know, sort of this very staid and prestigious um, series at Columbia is canonizing him finally in, um, in 2016. So it's this funny thing where this person who had always been an outlier is now suddenly, you know, incorporated into the fold and, and takes his place alongside you know, much more kind of mainstream um, authors. Yeah, it's a little bit as if the Encyclopedia Britannica, Great Books of the Western World, were to open its doors to Abby Hoffman's 1971 classic, Steal This Book. (laughs) Pauline, did you want to add anything? (laughs) Yeah, I teach a class on Confucianism, and the most radical person I could include at the time that was well-translated was Wang Yangming. And I'm (laughs) thrilled that uh, prestigious press has is willing to publish the, these translations on Li and now I can add him, and I love how Han calls him the bad boy of China, Chinese intellectual history, and including him, I think it makes me, makes it so I can teach Confucianism in a much richer way. So to pull that whole, the whole, our view of Confucianism much wider. So I have one more question about the kind of genesis of the project before we start diving in to the contents. And this is um, in the service of maybe any listeners who might be listening to this and thinking, hey, I've got a bad boy or bad girl um, that I study, and I think it would make a great volume for this press. How do I go about even beginning um, to put something like that together and approach the press. Um, so how did this, uh, in terms of the process, right, of coming to decide this is a volume we need, um, let's approach Columbia, or maybe you were approached by Columbia, um, were there any significant aspects and perhaps particularly important or surprising aspects of that process that you would want to talk about, um, particularly for other people, again, who might have their bad boys or bad girls or bad other um, entities, um, bad object choices, yeah, or about you know that they feel like might also make really important contributions. So, Polly, maybe um, we'll start with you. Yeah, um, I think it was this like lucky collision or like, sort of attraction of different forces all at the same time, and so I felt extremely lucky. I was working on a my first. I'd finished my dissertation. I was working on a book. I just finished it on Legion. I thought. I wish I had other people to talk to. Um, Han was working, he was teaching a class at that time for doctoral students and working on the subject. And then Rivi was finished, now has finished her book, which is coming out on Lead to Two. So it was this, this feeling that, oh, um, if you reach out to enough people, you're going to find others who are really excited about this topic you think is just the only, th- you're, you're the only one interested in it. And it's absolutely not the case. So I think reaching out to other people has been a great benefit to putting this book together. Um, and how long was the process from start to book in our hands now? I mean, how, um, Rivi, can you maybe speak to that? Like what was, how, how long was this process and what were, what was that like for you? Well, it's very hard to quantify because a lot of the translations that I did um, actually began with very, very, very drafty student translations that I did as a graduate student while working on my dissertation. Um, And so those translations then got refined and, you know, totally overhauled in some places and, and radically changed. But if you if you count all the way back, you know, to the very first time that I started translating Leech, I would say probably oh, close to a decade, I would even imagine. But I think our collaboration, the three of us, and then the other translators involved in the volume, probably, what, four or five years, maybe? Um, yeah. I think four at the outpost. It was it was relatively quick for this kind of thing. That's, yeah, that I re- sounds super speedy to me. Sorry, I'm thinking four years. Like, whoa, mm-hmm. that sounds so quick. 
Yeah. I remember also writing a letter to uh, when we were first pitching the project, we sent about 30 pages of draft translations to Jennifer Crew, our editor at Columbia Press. And um, I remember writing her this email trying to kind of hook her interest in the project. And I remember I sent her a quotation that um, Pauline, I think, first introduced me to It was somebody from the late Ming saying, even after Leach's books were banned, all the scholars would stash them away in their sleeves and everyone was eager to get a copy of these books. And so as you can see, Jennifer Crew, our hopefully our future editor, you know, these were bestsellers in their day. And if Columbia takes this book, surely Leach will be a bestseller in our day too. Um, And then she kind of took the bait. I'm expecting to go into like airports and stuff and just see it right on the shelves, like hot, 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 exclamation point, buy this book. Um, Ming Dynasty doesn't want you to read this book. Exactly, exactly. So speaking of hot, 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 the book is, uh, your volume is called A Book to Burn and A Book to Keep Hidden. Um, And in fact, you talk in the introduction about um, the significance of two of his most famous books, A Book to Burn, which was likely to have been first published in 1590, and another book to burn, um, which was first published posthumously in 1618. And these actually make up the focus of the work um, that is translated for this volume. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, first, what kinds of materials, um, for listeners who have never read Leger before or don't really know what might be included in these um, initial volumes, right, a book to burn and another book to burn, which were excerpted um, for this volume or part of what was excerpted for this volume, what kind of stuff um, would a reader find in one of these volumes, right? Like what what was um, the nature of a book to burn and another book to burn? And maybe, um, Rivi, we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Um, so the, a book to burn is, it's six gen, six fascicles, um, and the first two contain letters um, that correspondence that Leitcha carried on with his contemporaries, a kind of motley array of various different kinds of people, including officials and um, people in the Buddhist community, um, he people from the military, with the military background, he had lots of different, uh, very wide correspondence. And then in the next fascicles, there are writings on history, there are essays, there are funerary writings, um, there are, um, and then in the last two fascicles, there are poems. And so, um, in the order of the contents of these different parts of the book is rather jumbled. I mean, so within the letters, they're not organized chronologically. They're not organized thematically. And that was something that we really wanted to preserve um, in our translation of this, even though we are selective, we're not translating the entire uh, text. But nonetheless, we wanted to, to the greatest extent possible, present our translations in an order that corresponded to the order in which they would have appeared in this kind of Ming miscellany. And the miscellaneous character of the writings has always been very important to me as a reader because the experience, I mean, Ming readers probably wouldn't have begun reading on the first page and read straight through to the end the way that um, many contemporary Western readers would be likely to read a book. They would have just dipped in, read something that was of interest, and then, you know, maybe put it down and another day read something different. But if you do read the book in that order, in the order from page one all the way to the end, you're likely to come across many, many contradictions. Lijia will say something and then he'll contradict it and he'll say something else. And there's this sense in which the reader gets sort of buffeted around and confused and perplexed. And um, and so we really felt that that was, a, that, that there's, I have always felt that there's something similar to the experience of living in the Ming dynasty in the final years of the dynasty when there were so many objects that were being faked and books that had the name, somebody's name on them, but then the book turned out not to be by that person. And so you are constantly asking yourself as you read, you know, is this really what Leach meant? Was he being ironic? How could he contradict himself just two pages later or 200 pages later? Um, and so that preserving these contradictions 
Um, and preserving that sort of disorienting experience of the, for the reader was something that we, I think, it was an aesthetic decision that we made, um, which was perhaps a little bit unusual. Oftentimes, an, an anthology will collect things, either organize them chronologically or thematically, but we strongly felt that we, we did not, that would be untrue. It would almost be a sort of a betrayal of the spirit of Leech if we had done that. Unfortunately, Columbia let us get away with it. <laughs> and speaking of um, the preponderance of fakes, right, and the issue of fakes and authenticity, um, you mentioned in your introduction, the three of you, that one of the reasons to focus on these particular volumes in your volume um, is that their authenticity uh, is least in doubt, right? So the sort of um, uh, the issue of authenticity even comes up in the context of thinking about what made it into your volume, right? Um, so can you say a little bit about um, what you chose to include in the volume in terms of your own creation, or curation rather, of this work uh, of collected pieces or selected pieces by Leger? And Pauline, um, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, there's there's um, a large handful, more than a handful, many, many pieces that are the famous hits of Li Zhi. And we want to make sure to include those. So one of them, for example, is Tong Xing Suo. And we have not just one translation, but two translations of those. And perhaps you can talk about that, why we do that, too. Um, there's others like, uh, let's see, Da Yi Nu Ren, Xue Zhao. The one about short-sighted women, that's very, it's iconic. So we've included that. And there are quite a few for that reason. And then there are pieces that we think he does particularly well. Um, I think he's really good at the Xiaoping kind of genre, the short essay. So we've picked a few of those. The, the kind of work that he's so good at, we make sure, we want to make sure to include those to highlight his extreme strengths. Um, and then we want to include range too. So we have just a couple pieces of his commentary on history. Uh, and I think Han really translated those. Um, we have letters. Timothy Brooke was able to translate both Leech's letters and then the responses to Leech's letters, uh, which I think is, we think is a quite special contribution to the book too. Um, and then to expand the range, uh, Leech has been studied quite a bit in, for example, Chinese and Japanese scholarship. Um, but still there isn't, so much on his works on Buddhism. And so we want to stretch what we include to, to include those kind of works. And Jennifer Eichmann was able to contribute those uh, essays. And um, I think those were some of our reasons for, for collecting what we did. And Han or Rivi can say a little bit more. Yeah, Han, would you like to? Sure. Well, one of the things about Li Zhu is he was a champion of vernacular writing, right? Of drama and fiction, which were lower range, in the lower range of literary genres, right? You know, the important stuff was not going to be written in those genres. And he, he thought that these were significant. And so there are a few essays where he writes about, about these vernacular genres that, you know, in the 20th century then become the crucial genres in Chinese literature. There's a kind of a reversal that comes with modernity. So he was ahead of, of that by a couple of hundred years. But because he had this reputation of being an enthusiast for vernacular literature, there are many pseudo-leger commentaries on fictional works, things that he didn't write, but obviously somebody thought that it was a good publishing gambit to attach his name to it. And these are useful to look at because they express what people in the Ming Dynasty and the early Qing felt was sort of in the spirit of leger or could plausibly be passed off as leger. So if you want to think about his kind of long-range impact on Chinese intellectual history, these are useful things to read, but we didn't want to muddy the waters by including them here. Rivi, did you have anything you'd like to add? I actually do, yeah. Um, so we, um, you, you were, well, the question was about how we chose. So we initially chose a relatively small selection of essays and letters and poems. And then as we were translating, we kept on, we kept on expanding. Like we would eat, we would write each other these emails. Oh, I just found another one. We have to include this one too. And so at the end, we ended up submitting to the press a manuscript that was several hundred thousand words, or I don't know, at least a, a lot longer, bigger, bulkier a manuscript than we had initially um, proposed. And our editor came back to us and said, um, 
how how is this? You know, we have the budget for paper and ink, and you know, you're way over our expected um, length for this book. And Han had this absolutely memorable, <laughs> unforgettable response, and he said, um, "You know, translating Lichia is just like eating potato chips. I mean, you just can't stop once you start." <laughs> so that's always stayed with me as um, sort of really emblematic of how how the volume came together, just like eating potato chips. Just like eating potato chips. <laughs> and did anything? You remember that, Han? <laughs> so, did, given that, did anything get left out of the final volume that you were particularly fond of? Like, did, did is there any piece for any of you that you feel like, or pieces? Oh, you know, if we had another bunch of pages, I wish this would have made it in. Han, is there anything? Yeah, you? there's a there's one series of letters between Liger and a female student uh, about Buddhist doctrine, and um, it's called Guan Yin Wen. You know, questions about Guan Yin. And we didn't include it, although it's referred to in a lot of the polemics about Liger as one of these shameless, despicable things this awful man did. He wrote, you know, he had a private correspondence with a lady about, about Buddhism. And we ended up not translating it. I think we'll probably get to it eventually. It's rather specialized, so it might have been a distraction from the other issues in the book, but it definitely should be translated, and it's, it's on my list of things to do. Pauline or Rivi, do you have any special mm-hmm. favorites? Pauline? I love all his shelving essays. So I keep on plugging for them. And um, there are many in there that we would have loved to tr- uh, translate. There's one about, Rivi and I were talking about one about a dog where dogs are superior to humans. I don't remember the title of that one. Really funny. And I would have loved to, we will have another chance to translate that someday. Okay. And Rivi, any, anything to add? Yeah, there was one that I remember working so hard on a translation of, and it's a, it's an essay where Leach's wordplay is just all over the place. And we kind of workshopped it back and forth among ourselves. And it just was so difficult to convey the wordplay in this essay that we ultimately just kind of threw up our hands and gave up and said, you know, not this time. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, he's he's a very difficult author to translate, and many times we love that challenge. And in this particular case, he just, he, we, we couldn't do it. <laughs> well, this is actually a really nice um, way to uh, move into the larger issues of translation, um, right? And how you approach the craft of translation for the book. You do mention in the introduction um, that there were particular challenges of translating Lee's work, including wordplay, right? Including the kind of irony um, that was in the language, also including the vast um, internal diversity within the corpus of writing styles and kinds of writerly voice that he used. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, For each of you, what were some of the particular challenges and maybe also some of the particular joys of translating Leger's work for this volume. Um, and Pauline, perhaps we'll start with you. Um, so he writes across so many what we consider distinct genres. So he's a he's a liter- writer of literature fiction. He's a historian. He's a philosopher. He's a scholar of religion. And so for me, translating on my own, I would get stuck on something. And then if I sent it to Hannah Ruby, he'd be like, oh. And immediately I would get an answer. And so that kind of excitement about you're working on something, but someone who is a specialist in another area just quickly sees it. That was exciting for me that you could just move forward so quickly in collaboration. Um, and then other things that were exciting about working together would be the, we would wake up in the morning sometimes and there'd be like 20 emails from who knows which person we were collaborating with. And we'd be excited about some character that was, different in our edition than in um, an earlier edition of Lijia. And that was just so heartwarming to have another person or people excited about that sort of technical detail. But having that community made it um, really joyful. Hearing Hmm. you talk about that um, is really exciting, and it makes me feel like that's how we should be doing translation Right. In general. Um, But also hearing you mention 20 emails in a morning also makes me want to voice my appreciation and admiration for all of you doing this um, uh, on top of all the other work. Right. That all of us have to do in terms of not just academic work and writing work, but also like keeping ourselves 
healthy selves and having, you know, lives outside of, um, this is to say this must've been an incredible, um, amount of work. Um, and it's really amazing, um, that you were all able to balance that on top of everything else. Um, so, um, this is just a, a voicing of admiration. I can imagine. Um, and in four years, which is nothing, right, given this kind of project. So kudos to all of you and huge waves of admiration coming to you through the wires. Um, but let's keep talking about translation. Um, Han, for you, were there any particular challenges or particular joys about translating Leger's work? Sure, sure. Well, he's, he's often very humorous or ironic or sarcastic. And these are things that are hard to assess after three or four hundred years distance, right? So you you have to keep your ear attuned and to be hunting around in contemporary stuff for evidence of what it might have been that he was alluding to or being sarcastic about. And I had a general policy, maybe this is, will turn out to be a failing, but when there were, say, three or four possible readings of a sentence, I always assumed that the most outrageous of the set was the one that really mirrored his meaning. And And so that's what I would usually push for. Of course, we, you know, we discussed all these things and often we came back to something more reasonable. But that was, that was a given in his style, that he's, he's trying to provoke the reader. And you just have to be ready for that. Uh, he's not always going to say something that you'll just agree with and move on to the next thing. And what did, to give us a sense um, of more of the kind of texture of this, what does outrageous mean? in this context, right? What would an outrageous statement um, or an, an outrageous way of translating it look like? Sure. Well, there's one thing that I remember where he's, he's having a correspondence with one of his more staid and established colleagues, a man whose family had supported him, Ligier, for, for a period of his life. So he should theoretically be speaking to him in tones of respect and gratitude, but he's not going to do that. And so this man accuses him of doing somersaults, that is, doing something that's absurd just to get attention. And it turns out that there's an old Zen anecdote about somebody who was in the middle of a debate and rather than answering verbally, just did somersaults in the meditation hall, which scandalized everybody, but the truly Zen participants said, yes, that was the perfect thing to do. So, but anyway, the, the staid and upright uh, member of the community throws this at Ligier as a rebuke, and he completely... Uh, forgive the expression, rolls with it, right? He starts doing somersaults in return, and he says, I'm proud of being a somersaulter. And so, you know, this was this was not decorum among among intellectuals of the Ming dynasty, right? And But his willingness to, to be less than serious and to be offensive and even to, to appear silly makes him, to my mind anyway, particularly modern and somebody with whom I can have a very quick fraternal relation. <laughs> <laughs> Ruby, what about you? Particular challenges or particular and or particular joys of translating the pieces for this work? Yeah, well, maybe I'll just start by giving another example of Leach's outrageousness. Um, an example that I particularly love comes from another book to burn. Um, and it, by that point, by the very end of Leach's life, um, he had been acting, not only are his words outrageous, but his behavior also was considered completely outrageous. He shaved off the top of his head. He shaved off his hair on his head, but then he let his long uh, beard grow and he lived in this monastery, but he was um, but he was eating meat in the monastery, doing all these kind of really offensive and outrageous things. So the authorities said um, they threatened to deport him all the way back to his hometown in Fujian province. And he just wrote this outrage letter and he said, if you deport me um, to another place, I will, you're going to actually be spreading the poison because if you contain me in one place, I'll just be defiling that one place. But if you send me someplace else, then I'll be defiling two places. So really, it's really in your best interest to just keep me where I am, um, which is so absurd. But anyway, it's just another example of each of being outrageous. And so I always, I found it um, to be just so fun to kind of ventriloquize the voice to become, you know, a man and to become a 16th century person and a Ming person and, a, and an outrageous person. Um, and so there's a certain his he's a very theatrical writer. And um, and I enjoyed the theatricality of getting to put on that mask and translate um, in his voice. And I also think the things that that Pauline said are just absolutely true for me as well. I mean, having my translations 
uh, read and very seriously, meticulously by the collaborators and, you know, errors corrected and I got to weigh in on other people's translations. Um, it just was this wonderful collaboration that was really, really as I said, I mean, many of my translations began as student translations, so they were very, I was, you know, when you're learning to translate from classical Chinese, you always feel you have to account for every single word, and why is this, you know, in this order, and here and there, and I feel like the process of working um, collaboratively on this project really helped me to get from a person who translates sort of word by word to someone who's able to translate more like kind of leap by leap or idea by idea and just kind of free myself from this literal uh, clinging to, you know, the absolute order of the, of the, of the words that Leecha uses. On, did you want to add something? Yeah. Well, you know, each of us came into this project with some translations that we'd done before, and it was fun to change them for this purpose because, you know, when you're translating in order to put something in an argument, you're of course focusing on the things in the, Thing that you're translating that serve your argument, and maybe you point them up a little bit more. But when you're doing a book, you can't um, assume you know what arguments your readers are going to want highlighted. And so you have to kind of round them out. You have to make them available for a lot of different uses. And so that was a, a helpful change in perspective, I thought. Just you know, having a different audience did that to us. And this actually really nicely brings us to something that Pauline mentioned um, quite a bit earlier, which is the decision to offer multiple translations in the book of one of the pieces in particular. Um, so this is a text that's alternately translated in the, in the two different versions you give us in the book as explanation of the childlike heart mind or on the childlike mind. And this is the text I think that Pauline, you were mentioning before. Um, so this is fascinating to me, um, this decision to offer these two translations and the experience of reading these translations side by side really epitomizes for me a lot of what you've been talking about, um, about the kind of wonderful plurality of these approaches to translation um, uh, that were part of this project. So let's talk a little bit about this. So for listeners, um, first of all, who are not familiar with this piece at all and may not have any familiarity with the work of Leger, um, can we talk a little bit about the nature of this piece? Like, what's the piece about and what's the big deal? Um, and perhaps, Pauline, we can start with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's Tongxing So on the childlike mind, literally. Um, and it's perhaps his most, I'd say his, his most celebrated essay. It's very short in Chinese. It's probably two pages long. Um, and it's, it celebrates spontaneity and um, subjectivity and um, creativity. And so it brings in the, if you look at the larger framework of Confucianism, it's looking, it's bringing our attention um, rather than looking outward at the culture and the texts and the classics is bringing us inward to think about um, what we wish for. Um, and then it had a great influence on writing since Leech's time, too. Great. Rivi, did you want to um, add anything to that? Just a little bit, maybe. Um, that, well, I think one, one aspect of that essay that's always spoken to me is the fact that Leech there talks about the way that when one learns too much, when one crams lots of information into one's brain, there's a kind of a clogging up that can happen. And that true artistic expression, which for him in this essay is also, it also has an ethical uh, component. So that authenticity, which is in this essay equated with, um, with, true aesthetics or kind of the actual, the most beautiful thing is also the truest thing, the most authentic thing comes from clearing away all that accrued, you know, external learning and just going back to one's own, one's childlike mind, one sort of the, any grunt, any howl, any moan that sort of wells up in your heart, that's art and that's true and that's good and beautiful. Um, and so that that's, Sort of, I guess if I had to summarize that, so that's how I would summarize it. Great. And Han, did you want to add? Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's the thing. It's the piece of literature that's best known. It's one of the key references for works like the Dream of the Red Chamber that are really important uh, as as uh, you know pieces of literature. And uh, it in the career of Chinese thinking being matched with other strands of thinking, this is one of the first things that people caught on around 1900 and said, you know, this really reads very much like Rousseau. 
this is actually Chinese thinkers who are exploring, you know, Western philosophy. They 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 catch on to Rousseau, and it's a it's a particular moment in Chinese history when people are rejecting everything that was associated with authority and learning and the imperial system and so on. So it uh, it's really a pivotal piece in that way. It, it, now that you say that, it is very Rousseauian. Um, mm. Actually, we just taught Rousseau. Um, in the, uh, the, I think the discourse on the origin of man um, yeah. in the, the program I teach in. So you decided to offer two different translations of this work, and they're quite different. And I think they're wonderfully different. I think this was um, one of the things I really loved about the volume. So let's talk about those differences. So um, if I'm not mistaken, Pauline and Rivi, you collaborated on one of the translations and Han did um, the other one of the translations. So let's talk first, um, Pauline and Rivi, about your translation. Um, what for you was significant about the decision to take the approach to translate it in terms of, I think, what the author or what the introduction calls scholarly precision, right? And the introduction refers to the other one as a translation that prioritized fluency. Of course, these terms are... You know, I mean, they're both fluent and they're both precise in their different ways, but let's set the stage. So, Pauline, um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to this piece? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a really, they're all fun pieces to translate. This is also another, it's a fun piece to translate. And it's about spontaneity. And it's called A Childlike Mind. And yet, to understand the riches of the essay, as with Almost all of uh, Leach's writings, you need to understand how he's refer he's extraordinarily erudite, and he's referring to he is a scholar who knows absolutely knows the cultural tradition, and he's referring to all these texts, and he does it very cleverly. And so, there are parts of it too where we need to find what what version of the commentary, or it was it's very detailed when you think about uh, when we're footnoting um, the references that Leach makes in Tongxing Suo. Um, yeah, um, so it's a, we, it was a very annotated version, this one. And I think the virtue of that is for a student who's unfamiliar with Li Zhi, they can, they can immediately get a sense of, oh my goodness, it's not just what's on the paper, it's all this other stuff everywhere else that Li is referring to, and he's playing with it and manipulating it in order to make his point. So such an erudite scholar making this point that what we want to get back to is a childlike mind. Rivi, would you like to add anything? Not really. No, I don't think so. I think, um, I guess what just Han, I think wanted originally to have two, uh, not to have two versions of many different pieces. And then we ended up, I think that was right. We ended up not doing that, but this particular one is so such his sort of, if you know one thing about Leech, you'll know this essay. And so we wanted to make it available in different, in two different forms. And Han, yeah. um, can you speak to your approach to translating? Sure. Well, there's, a, there's this uh, debate going on in translation studies about nativizing or domesticating translations versus foreignizing translations, right? Yeah. And most people in academia, anyway, would say that the foreignizing translation, the rough translation, is the virtuous one. And that if you're doing a domesticating translation, you're compromising, you're admitting a kind of an ethnocentricity, you're accepting the foreign work only insofar as it reads like something you already know. Right? So I, I know this debate. I'm, I'm on both sides of it at different moments. But I thought, well, let's strike a blow for the domesticating kind of translation because it can do some things that a very scholarly translation that's focused always on the originating text and the originating culture, can't do. And that is, you, know, you can make a kind of a, a, an easy access to the minds of readers who might not want to go back and, and look at all the existing references. So it was just an experiment to translate the essay without footnotes, you know, as if I were kind of making it up as I went. And so it's, it's very much an as-if kind of thing. But we wanted to indicate that in you know, in some possible world, there could be a whole range of different translations, and that these are just two possibilities that we throw out there to stimulate the imagination of our readers. In our the translation Ruby and I have, um, I feel like it's good for students, and yet when you read it, you miss out on this other thing that's so great about Legion, which is it reads really smoothly, and there's this um, like you lose that immediacy, and so by having both translations, you get the virtues of both. Uh, and the stu and the reader can decide. I mean, I, for me as a reader, right? I'm not the reader, but a reader. Um, I think for me also, one of the things that's great for students, um, and we're all students 
in some way, hopefully, right? Hopefully that never changes is precisely the fact of having two, right? I mean, I think there's, um, there's so much fear that goes into um, the process of initially taking on the reading and translation of a language um, that feels like it's somewhat distant from you, um, that I think there's a real service to even making the statement that, look, here are two different translations of this text. Neither of them is wrong. Neither of them is right. They do different kinds of work. And I think inviting readers just personally to think about translation in those terms, right? Not in terms of is which one is right, but in terms of what kinds of work do both of these do and offering the possibility explicitly that there are multiple ways of rendering a text um, is, is actually itself a service. So I think um, there, there are many ways for me in which this is actually a huge contribution to students. And one of them is simply the fact of the multiplicity and embracing the multiplicity of these. And that actually, um, I think for me, brings me to another part of uh, the conversation about this volume that I wanted to make sure we had. And this is the significance of or the nature of this work as a teaching tool, right, as a tool for students, um, as a tool to teach with. Um, one of the things I'd love to hear your thoughts on is how and whether you imagine um, the use of this book in a classroom setting, um, in multiple kinds of classroom settings, and in, in teaching contexts that aren't necessarily only about China, right? Um, one of the things about the volume that's super, super useful is that there are these headpieces um, before each of the translations that offer context for people who are not specialists in um, Chinese literature, in the Ming, anything like that. So let's talk a little bit about your feelings about this in teaching. And um, perhaps, Rivi, we can start with you. Well, I hope it will be adopted in classrooms. Um, we definitely went into the project with that goal explicitly in mind. And our introduction, you know, is aimed for people who are not aimed at people who are not explicitly trained necessarily, though we hope it does have sort of more scholarly readers also. Um, and the head, the head pieces, I mean, I wrote a a bunch of them. I found that to be extremely helpful for my own kind of understanding of helping to contextualize each piece historically because because they're not organized historically or chronologically rather in in the in the volume. Um, it's helpful, I think, to have the headpieces for context. That um, we also have a timeline on the back. We have a map, um, and so we wanted to provide these kind of what paratextual. Um, um, sort of guidelines, or I don't know, guidelines is not really the right word, but sort of helpers to help people, um, students and, and faculty in teaching. I guess, I mean, I'm hopeful that this book will be used in places like um, Chinese Civ courses, in, um, you know, I don't know, like even maybe in like a world history, like undergrad course in world history, um, you know, intellectual history. Um, so, I, but I will be really interested over over the coming years to hear from people who are using it and to learn where the book is actually being used. Um, and Han or Pauline, did you have anything? Sure. To oh, well, uh, you know, some of the interest is just going to be in what Lijer has to say, right? For example, he's a 16th century feminist, right? Mm -hmm. the The streets are not full of 16th century feminists. <laughs> but uh, so you can you can look at his arguments, you know, pro-feminism and be interested in them as arguments. But it's also really important to see, you know, what what in his background made it possible for him to express these views and to support them and put them out in the in the form of that time. Right. I think you have to have a dual focus. Right. Um, I teach at the University of Chicago, where many of my colleagues, I think, are not aware that Aristotle has not left the building. And so it's you often meet with resistance if you try to say, oh, by the way, the Nicomachean Ethics is really a book about ancient Greek perceptions of virtue and, and action and so on. They think they think you can just pull it out and set it going in the present world. So I have to push against that uh, and. Likewise, I would want to insist on Nietzsche's context, but I don't want to close him up in that context and say this is merely the kind of feminism that a 16th century Confucian exam successful male in China would have. Right? 
So there, there's this nice hinge there between taking something and using it and respecting its context of origin. Colleen, did you know? Yeah, I love that question. I haven't thought too much about it because um, we just finished translating it. Uh, and so if I think about it, um, I think Lee's just such an exciting figure and on so many different fronts. So again, literature and literary theory and ethics and just philosophy and feminism and um, historiography. And I would love, in my dream, I would love to see him be exciting and appealing to and of interest to people outside of China studies. So someone who's teaching a course on ethics or on, um, right, or someone who's teaching a course on literary theory or someone who's teaching a course on feminist theory, I would love to see him of uh, interest. And I would be very interested in seeing what these scholars then think of the work of Lija. And actually, the, the final question that I'll have is precisely um, along those lines before we start wrapping up. And that is, um, for listeners who might be listening to this and thinking, yes, I would love to integrate Lija into my course on blah, 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 that's not about China. Um, what are some of the most um, or some significant themes that thread through the works um, that uh, pr- people who are not specialists might be particularly interested in looking for. So, for example, um, a number of you have mentioned already um, thinking about him as a 16th century feminist, right? And we've talked a little bit about the significance of some of his comments and thoughts on women. Um, you also mentioned in the introduction that friendship is a particularly significant theme in the work. Are there any other um, significant themes, right, that you would want to kind of give a shout out to so that listeners can know um, perhaps to look in this volume for work that speaks to that in a way that they might not otherwise be aware of. Um, Rivi, would you like to maybe start? Sure, yeah, that's such a great question. So um, I guess one aspect of Leach's writings that's particularly of interest to me is Leach as what I might call an activist reader. So he is not the kind of reader who, I mean, he, as we've said, he was very erudite. He read very broadly in many different traditions in Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism. Um, But he's very interested in taking texts and making them mean what he wants them to mean. Um, And so um, actually Stanley Fish has an article where he talks about how texts don't make sense. Readers make sense of texts, but it's the reader who imbues the text with meaning. And so there is a certain sense in which Leitze is extraordinarily modern or maybe even postmodern in his ability to kind of rip, uh, you know, uh, rip parts of text out of their original context and juxtapose them and create new meanings from them in a way that's meaningful for him. And so I think in people who are interested in the history of reading or hermeneutics, um, that that Leach really has a lot to add um, to those to those discussions. Pauline, did you want to add? Yeah, um, a couple things, and I love that this question too. To think about who we wish for to read this book, or to be to bring Leach into their courses. Um, so one would be I'm interested in ethics, and I could and I think so. A lot of ethics, just over generally speaking, thinks about it as based in reason. Leach, though, is interested in this. I mean, his his like iconic essay is on the childlike mind, and I I think he has a lot to say about what is it to live a good life or an ethical life for children or for differently abled people or for I, I suppose you could stretch it like animals or just um taking our idea of ethics away from simply looking at the importance of reason. I think Leitch can do a lot uh, with that. And the second thing that I find him very exciting in his thinking is. We are we're good at talking about autonomy or distinctiveness or um, the self. And I think he does a great job of being radical, I guess, radical, but then also showing us how we can actually embrace and use and rewrite and rework a rich tradition in order to support this sort of distinctive um, uh, life. And so I think on those fronts, he has enormous amount to say and many more, too. Han, did you have anything to add? Uh, you know, in Liger, there's this very deep current of generous anger about the abuse of power by people who possess power against the powerless. Kind of and, timely. Kind of 
kind of a timely thing. You know, who would have thought? Think? Really? <laughs> but, uh, he's, he, uh, you know, he's, this, was, this is what makes him so important in Chinese philosophy because, again, many of the people who would be identified with Confucianism speak in ways that are supportive of the established order. You know, maybe they think that people could be a little bit better than they are, but essentially, you know, the the rituals and the, the the form of life that has been handed down to us, these are fundamentally good. And Li Zhu is ready to, to knock it all down. And he has concrete cases. There were some of these uh, Taizhou Confucianists who went around preaching the Tao out in the street and claiming that the lowliest people in the kingdom could achieve the revolution, the revelation of the Tao. Sorry, that's a lapsus, right? Uh, that And uh, he... One of these men was, uh, in fact, condemned to death in a kind of a sham trial and uh, killed by a bunch of powerful officials and landowners working in collusion. And this case is one of the things that breaks uh, Leger's friendship with some of his uh, associates. And it's amply documented in his correspondence. And he writes a beautiful obituary for this man whom he never met, Ho Xinyin. But so, you know, you could... Un- you know, reading certain manuals of Chinese history and philosophy, think that the Confucians were always on the side of the established order. And here's a here's a guy who has read his Confucius very deeply, and who sees that in fact it's an ideology that is, you know, it's certainly an ideology on behalf of the educated class, but not necessarily of the property owning class. And Lijia creates this kind of gulf between the educated and the powerful that. You know, is, is an important gulf to preserve, preserve. And certainly, you know, current Chinese history, current American history, current world history can give us a lot of glosses for, for this impulse of his. So now that we've come um, to our conclusion or we're going to start wrapping up, is there anything, um, well, of course, there's a billion, million things in the volume that we didn't talk about, right? I mean, it's such a rich volume um, and there's so much there for listeners who will get themselves a copy and start exploring. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that didn't um, come up today but that you'd like to mention for listeners um, uh, who perhaps haven't yet become readers? Um, Rivi, is there anything you'd like to get on the table that hasn't come up? Pauline? We brought up a number of genres. And uh, I was thinking there was one we we forgot to bring up was he's also a pretty good poet, too. So lots of historian, philosopher, social critic, essayist, and a really quite good poet, too. Um, and we have a number of translations in there by Timothy Billings. And Han? And, yeah, there are a couple of documents that are not by Li Zhu, but that are very important for understanding him. Uh, Rivi translated the memorial sent to the emperor denouncing him, which was basically responsible for his fate, and gives just precious evidence in what it was about this guy that got under people's skin. And there's also a piece by someone who was an associate of his writing, you know, rather bravely after he'd been condemned and after his books were supposed to be burned, but writing maybe 20 years later uh, in defense of him and saying he was actually a very decent sort of guy. And this is the man I knew. This is what he was like. So these are two pieces that are outside of Leger's corpus, but help us to frame the, the career of this guy. So my final question to all of you um, is just a way to look forward. Now that the book is out, and congratulations on an amazing volume that I hope will be widely used by all kinds of readers and teachers and students, what are each one of you working on now? What's currently inspiring you in your work? Um, Han, you've said a little bit already about um, your uh, book on translation. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, um, I'm trying to uh, group to recruit a lot of people into a group that will be writing a history of exchanges among cultures within East Asia. Because, you know, we have a lot of literary histories that are the national literary history of country X, Y, or Z, and they systematically ignore the relations across their borders. So we're trying to bring up those relations across the borders. This is mostly stuff that I don't know anything about. So I'm really a manager of the project, project rather than an author, but it's fascinating and I'm learning from it. Pauline, what about you? What are you currently working on? What's inspiring you these days? Oh, so I said a little bit about I'm, look, I'm interested in theories of um, children and childhood that are indigenous to China. And then I'm interested in the idea of I wanted something. This was a this past project. These couple books on Li Zhi have been about um, 
it's a little bit more serious. It's an intellectual historical kind of project. And so my next one, the one I'm working on, is on the subject of play. So just what is play? Um, and then I'm looking at it through the centuries and seeing how conceptions of it change in China. So a sort of uh, overtly fun project. Awesome. And Ruby, you've also said a little bit about it, but would you like to um, add anything about what you're currently working on and what's inspiring you? Well, I'm I'm kind of in a transition point. Um, so my my comparative um, project that involves Lichia and which was tremendously enriched by the experience of translating so many um, essays and working with others on translation. So the, now the translation is out and my um, my monograph is coming out, which um, compares Lichia to some of his contemporaries in Europe. And so I'm kind of in that like next phase of like, okay, what is the next project going to be? And the thing that I'm thinking about has to do with, actually, we talked about the essay on the childlike mind and the fact that Lichia is known for having endorsed this theory of aesthetics that privileges sort of spontaneous outbursts. Um, and he was a great critic of the sort of reigning uh, aesthetic theory of his day, which was the Fugu Pai, the return to antiquity movement, which was later terribly criticized as having endorsed these kind of like slavish imitations of earlier uh, of earlier poets and writers. And so I'm interested in the discussions of innovation versus imitation in 16th century China and also concurrently in 16th century Europe. And then I'm also interested in the afterlives of those discussions, um, particularly in early 20th century China. Um, Hu Shi writes about the Chinese Renaissance. And so um, I'm interested in in thinking about vernacular movements, um, poetic imitation, poetic innovation, and how um, early 20th century Chinese authors are drawing both on these 16th century European roots and then also on authors like Li Zhe and his predecessors. Fabulous. Well, best of luck on all of those projects, everyone. And thank you so much for taking time away from them um, to talk with me about this one. I really appreciate it. It was a super pleasure. And thank you. Congratulations. Thank you, thank thank you. you so thank much. You. You. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us today at the podcast and come back again soon.